All right, well, hey guys, how's everybody doing? There you go, good. So great being with you today. So um, if you're watching this on Sunday, this is the Thursday night church service and we're filming it because we're gonna be in Buckeye on Sunday helping open up a brand new church. So Thursday night church family, let's give a big shout of praise and give some claps and some shouts for the work that we're doing in Buckeye. All right. Well, hey, today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking in John chapter 17 about the prayer of Jesus Christ. And if you'll open up uh, your Bible in John 17, we're going to look at the, most gr the greatest prayer that Jesus ever had for his church. How many of you would say that you believe that prayer has impacted your life at some level or another? Would you raise your hand? How many of you could say that you have a family member or a friend that prayed for you and you know that it made a difference in your life? Would you raise your hand? I want to tell you a story of a number of individuals who prayed for me and it had a powerful effect on my life. Um, as a young man, I was a kid who uh, rejected uh, the message of the gospel. I didn't like the church, didn't really want to be involved in church. I didn't really like to hear the Bible stories. I just wanted to have fun and do my own thing. And as I grew up as a young boy, and I got, I got into quite a bit of trouble. I was a troublemaker. I was doing all sorts of kind of things, uh, raising a ruckus. And what ended up happening was, as I got into high school, I got into the wrong crowd. And in high school, I, I counted it up uh, just this morning. Um, I counted it up. I was in seven different schools before I graduated high school. I was either kicked out or I left because I was about to get kicked out or I just didn't fit for whatever reason. And so seven different schools over the period of time from kindergarten through 12th grade, and one school in particular that I went to was this uh, very tight, uh, regimented uh, school called Arkansas Baptist. And uh, this school had a lot of rules, and I did not like the rules at all. And I didn't fit in very well, and all the kids looked very polished and pretty, and I did not look polished and pretty. And... Uh, I was a rough kid. I had a bad reputation, and somehow I got into that school. My parents made a way for me to get in there. I got in there, and I definitely didn't fit in. I'd walk down the hallways, and then people would see me and kind of part, like Moses walking through the Red Sea. You know, they didn't want to be around me, and then they would whisper about me, and I felt so uh, judged, if you will. And um, there was a young girl. Her, she came up to me. Her name was Katie. And she said to me, I was a, a, a young, young guy in high school, and she said, Ryan, I do want you to know, I imagine this is hard for you because I'm sure you know you don't fit in here. <laughs> and I said, I, I know that. And she said, but I'm praying for you, and I know that you're going through a tough season in your life, but I just wanted you to know I'm praying for you. Now, believe me, um, Katie was in a whole nother league. She was in a league of her own. She was... Um, a beautiful young lady. She obviously had a relationship with God, and she was an, a, a very wonderful person. Um, she was like an angel to me, and there was no potentially dating her because I was basically doing the devil's work. So there's no, no kind of relationship or attraction there, but I respected Katie, and I remembered Katie. Um, years would go by when, with Katie and her story would grow where she would become an incredibly godly girl and she would have an influence and her life would end way too early. Um, she ended up later in my college years um, dying in a car accident 
Um, she was engaged to one of my good friends, and their whole life was going to be dedicated to ministry and to serving the Lord. And I always remembered Katie's life through that period of time where she was with us um, about how she prayed for me, and I didn't feel judged by her. And then there was the story of my mom. My mom was the woman who was always praying for me. When I would come in late at night uh, from parties or whatever I was doing, uh, she would wait up and on the couch praying for me. And there were many nights I came in and I remember coming in and I saw my mom pass out on the couch with a Bible open in a journal. And there was a time or two I saw my name in that journal. She prayed for me all the time. And then there was this woman by the name of Miss Sterrett. Um, she was one of the teachers at that really tight, stringent school, Arkansas Baptist. And the story goes in my life as I came to, know, I came to faith in Jesus Christ uh, right outside of high school, had a very powerful conversion story. And then people began to hear, oh, Ryan supposedly came to Jesus. And half of the people that heard it said, yeah, right. And I did, and I had a very radical conversion story. I shared my testimony in a very large church. It was an incredible, redemptive experience. Everybody got to hear how God had worked in my life, and uh, still many people kind of didn't trust me. And then uh, I was invited, I cannot believe this, I was invited to Arkansas Baptist to go preach at a chapel service. And I show up, and again, it's like Moses and the Red Sea. The school separates. Half of them believe that this transformation is real, and half of them do not. And I remember I started, uh, I opened up the scriptures, and I started preaching in that chapel service. And I saw the Holy Spirit work on the lives of these young men and women, and I pleaded with them to surrender their life to Christ, if those that were playing religion. And, um, and then the bell rang. And then Miss Sterrett stood up and she said, let them preach. And then the whole room got real silent because it's time to go back to class. And the principal stood up and said, go on, Ryan, go on. And I finished preaching and then Miss Sterrett came up to me and she said, I was praying for you all throughout your high school. I was praying for you. I think of people like Katie or my mom or Miss Starrett, and then I think of people like in our church, Ellen, or our prayer team, or Sarah Beekman, people that have dedicated their lives to pray and see God do amazing, crazy cool things. Has your life been impacted by people that have been praying for you? Would you raise your hand? So here's my question. If your life has been impacted by people praying for you, how much more would your life be impacted if Jesus Christ was praying for you? Every prayer that Jesus prays gets answered. Amen? So here's what we're going to see. John chapter 17 is where we're at, and we're looking at uh, verses 20 through 26, and Jesus does exactly that. He prays for the church. He prays for the church, and we're going to see in these first few verses a couple of things that he prays for. The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus prays for the church to be one. He prays that the church would be one, and this is uh, immediately in the beginning of his prayer. It's a prayer uh, for unity. It's a prayer for coming together. 
And if you look in your Bible, verse 20, here's what it says. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be, help me finish it, one. Um, Jesus is praying for this oneness. So who's he praying for? Uh, Jesus prays for his disciples, and he also prays for those who will believe later. Look what it says in the text. I do not ask for these only, that would be the disciples, but also for those who will believe uh, in me through their word. Uh, the Greek word, word, is logos, and it literally means a communication that comes by either preaching and teaching or the written word. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm praying not only for these disciples, that was what we learned last week, but I'm praying for all of those who will ever believe. And that is you and me. That's us. We are the ones who believe in the teachings of Scripture, the apostles' writings. We are the ones that believe because somebody planted a church or a church was formed and you heard the gospel and we are the ones. So this prayer is for believers. This is the greatest prayer, a prayer for the church. It is through their word. In understanding the nature and the purpose of this unity, he says in verse 21, if you'll read it with me, we'll look at verse 21 through 23 and let's read that. It says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be, help me out, be one, even as we are, help me out, one. Again and again and again and again, this reference to one is the prayer for Jesus in, this, in, our, in the church. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world would know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And we'll pause right there. What I want to share with you is about helping you understand the purpose and the nature of this unity. Um, and by doing so, I'll break it into three different parts is the extent of unity um, I'll break it into the essence of unity and the end goal of unity. So Jesus is praying first for the church to be one, and the, the extent of unity is really for all. It's for every person that would ever uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's for all churches. It's not just one large church, world church, uh, organized by a bishop <clears throat> or a pope or a church leader, the idea is that all, all sorts of different kinds of churches, the extent is for every believer that we can have Christians belong to different fellowships and, and churches, but yet they belong all together. And so uh, the extent of that is this prayer is that it's for every believer, and that is what's been called the universal church. It's the the, the global church. When God looks at the church, uh, churches all around the world, he sees the bride of Christ. He sees one church in a sense. And each church submits to Jesus Christ if they are a functioning, biblical, Jesus-honoring church. But what is the essence of this unity that we're learning about? The essence of this unity lies within that word that he prayed for us to be 
one. The essence of unity, I think, is hidden in that word right there. Um, he is, is, Jesus said he prayed for us to be one uh, with him as he is with the Father. The Greek word for one is his, and it means, literally, it means used of a single uh, thing, uh, not two or more. In other words, what it means is, is not two and not three. One means, help me out, one. And so Jesus is praying for this oneness, and I, I couldn't believe, I think I found an incredible powerful truth about the essence of unity today, and I haven't read it in any commentary. I've never seen anybody teach on it, but I want to share it with you today. I think this oneness has to do with the same kind of oneness that is referenced in Ephesians chapter 5. In John 17, the Greek word is his, H-E-I-S, it's one, it means one, and Jesus was praying for the church to be one. It's obviously some kind of unity, um, but the Greek word is used in John 17 in Jesus' prayer, and it's also used in the Apostle Paul's prayer of oneness. And in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we find the oneness, and it actually refers to Jesus and his church. In Ephesians 5, it refers to the Apostle Paul illustrates the relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage. And then he references Genesis 2.24 by saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. And he says, verse 32 in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, and this is a mystery. It's profound. And he's saying it refers to Christ and the church. So here's where I'm going with this. Jesus is praying for the church to be one. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Amen? And so Paul uses that same metaphor. This mystery is about the church, and it's the relationship between a husband and a wife and their marriage. The two come together, and there's one. And if you've got a good marriage, there's something special about that marriage. It's sacred. There's a oneness that is there. It's a covenant relationship, emotional, physical, and spiritual. And that's the kind of closeness that Jesus is actually praying for with the church. Um, it's a oneness. It's a profound thing. Paul beautifully illustrates the comparison, highlighting the profound oneness between Christ and his church. As a husband and a wife are united, so Jesus and his church are united. And this is what John 17, I think, is talking about, that it's a very close, close covenant relationship. Um, verse 21, look what it says. Um, he said that they all may be one. In verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. I thought about this. How, how could you become perfectly one? How could you share in that closeness and connection with Jesus Christ as the church? How could that happen? And I thought about it more and studied it, and I thought, you know what? We will become perfectly one. There will be an incredible unity. The perfection of this unity, I think, awaits for the future. I think that's what Jesus is referring to. I believe this will, will happen when we receive our glorified bodies. 
At the rapture, the Bible says that in a moment's notice, we'll be raptured and then we will receive glorified bodies. And then there will be this consummation of marriage between Jesus, uh, the bridegroom, and the church. The bride, um, th th there will be an event, what's, what's called in the Scripture, the marriage supper of the Lamb, according to Revelation chapter 19. And this event will uh, occur um, immediately during the time of the beginning of the Great Tribulation at the end of the church age. And there's a marriage supper of the Lamb, and the bride... The church becomes the wife in this marriage supper of the Lamb. And my point is, is that there's a perfection that is to come. We are not there yet. My point is, is that God is working in the unity of the church, praying for the unity of the church, but it's an ongoing thing that he's working on. Just like if you've got a good marriage, it gets better over time. And so Jesus is praying for this oneness and its ultimate fulfillment as part of God's redemptive plan and the depth of oneness is to come. And so that is the essence of it. It's a very incredible close relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church and it's something that we do all together as well. It's not just individual, it's all together. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. Yeah, and the essence of this is a... a it, it mirrors and, and reflects in many ways a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And so what is the end goal? The end goal, Jesus prays for uh, that there might be glory, that, that Jesus prays for this kind of unity so that the world might believe again and again. If you'll look in the scripture, it says so that the world might believe, so that the world might know. And the, the, the end goal of this unity is that God is going to use us, use the church to bring a reflection and testimony to people around us. One commentator noted, the lost world cannot see God, uh, but they can see Christians, and what they see in us is what they will believe about God. If they see love and unity... They will perhaps believe God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. So much of what we do here uh, determines and influences, at least you could say, influences the way the world perceives even God. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. You are the church. We are the church gathered together, but you are the church as well, sent individually. You represent the name of Jesus. Uh, you are part of the bride of Christ. And so how do we put this uh, prayer of unity into practice? Jesus prays this. Um, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, also known as St. Augustine, was a renowned theologian, a philosopher uh, during the Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th century, and widely regarded uh, for his development of Western Christianity, and he's got this famous quote, and it says this, and I'll repeat it a couple times if you want to write it down. He says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And then he says, in all things, charity. And what he means by this is he emphasizes the importance of unity as with the fundamental beliefs in the Christian faith and then allowing for diversity of opinion on secondary matters and issues. And so the question is, is how do we put this 
prayer of unity, prayer of oneness into practice. Again, as I said last week, in some instances, we have to let the main thing be the main thing. As believers, we shouldn't be fighting about everything. We should only fight about a few things. And as Augustine said, in the essentials, let there be unity. In other words, keep the main thing the main thing. For example, our doctrinal statement at the church, it's reduced down to some very core basics, the idea that Jesus Christ is Lord, the idea that the Bible is divinely inspired, it's inerrant, it has authority, the idea that salvation is by grace through faith. These are essentials. And what Augustine was saying is, in essentials, let there be unity. And then he would go on to say, in non-essentials, let there be liberty. Uh, in other words, we can loosen up in some areas. This could refer to, again, the style of worship. It could refer to the church governance. It could refer to the details concerning eschatology. It could refer to, as a Christian, do you drink alcohol in moderation or do you choose to abstain? Um, it could refer to whether you eat meat or whether you eat vegetables or whether you eat both. Um, I just received my notice from Arizona Game and Fish. I'm proud to say I was drawn for bull elk, and I, we will be eating plenty of meat. Uh, Lord willing, right? And uh, it, some of you that uh, that may be offensive to you, don't worry. It's organic. It's very organic. Uh, so we don't shop at Whole Foods. We shop in the National Forest. There you go. Um, so whether you listen to music, Christian music or secular music, whether you wear boots, whether you wear white tennis shoes, whether you have piercings, whether you have tattoos, whether you have green hair or purple hair, those are all non-essentials. Those are the things that like, there should be freedom there. As a Christian, I preach and teach and tell people, you have a, what's called Christian liberty. You have a lot of it. You exercise it all you want. I always tell my wife, if it's not in the Bible and says it's not sin, then it's not sin. So we'll do it. We're going to have a lot of nice sugary treats. Uh, I ate my dessert first tonight, so I'd be able to go to bed. Um, the non-essentials, this gives us the, the freedom. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to hold liberty high. In this country, we value freedom. As a Christian, you should value freedom. Um, in the non-essentials, let there be liberty. But he says, in all things, let there be charity. This means that there ought to be, no matter what it is, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, their politics, their theology, their personal life decisions and their choices, there ought to be charity. What does it mean by charity? It means love and kindness and goodwill and grace. In fact, the Bible goes on all throughout it and um, says that basically we ought, to be, we ought to be the ones to let our conversations be full of grace and seasoned with salt. That, our, that the way we talk, it ought to just be constantly like grace is coming out. Um, what I'm not advocating is this means that we don't speak truth. I'm not, I'm not advocating that. The Bible is very clear that we speak truth and we speak grace. Um, Jesus was said to be full of grace and full of truth. And I think that's what is needed here. Um, so what this means and doesn't mean, it means that we need to learn how to, uh, with the non-essentials, let there be liberty. With the essentials, let there be unity. And with all things, let there be charity. Um, that those are the kind of people that we need to be. And I believe that if we do those things, then we will be uh, far more unified than divided. 
Um, secondly, we're going to see that Jesus prays for the church to have eternal fellowship. This is pretty special uh, to think about. Um, verse 24, um, we'll start there. And um, I can show you it, it, at least uh, it looks like maybe three or four parts to this prayer um, that are here for us. And the first is, um, Father, I desire. Um, Jesus makes a plea. Um, I'll come back to that. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me uh, may be with me. In other words, I want them to be with me. Um, I see that as privilege. And then he says, where I am. Well, we know Jesus is in heaven. That is a place. It's a part of the prayer. And then he says, for the purpose of to see my glory. Um, that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundations of the world. I want to show you four parts to this prayer right here for eternal fellowship. First is the plea, and Jesus said, A father I desire. And that word desire literally means, it means to wish or to want. In other words, Jesus says, Father, here's what I wish for. This is what I want. And when Jesus makes that kind of request, then the father is going to answer, and the father is going to respond. If you're a mom or a dad, and your kid comes to you and asks for something, and you've got the power to give it to them, and it's not going to hurt them, it's going to help them, of course your answer is, yes, I give that to you. Will you tuck me in? I mean, maybe you're watching TV, and you're thinking, man, I, you know, I'd like to finish this show. Uh, but then you look at them, and then you say, yeah, I'll tuck you in. A friend calls you, a neighbor calls you, uh, uh, somebody calls you, you want to help them if you love them. And the father loves his son. And so the son says, Father, Dad, here's what I desire. Here's his plea. And so he makes that plea. And then he's going to talk about the privilege of being together. He's requesting a fellowship with you and me, the church. It's a privilege. He says, Father, I desire that they also, uh, that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Jesus says, I want them to be with me. I want them to be with me, Father. Um, that is privilege. It's an incredible blessing and favor beyond our imagination. Some of you could think about great experiences in your life. Maybe it was getting married. Maybe it was having a kid. Maybe it was landing an incredible job. Maybe it was buying a house. Maybe it was buying a new car or maybe a truck. Um, maybe it was traveling to a beautiful place or climbing a mountain or seeing the power of a roaring river or walking along a beach or a sunset or a sun, sunrise to take the beauty in of the stars and you see all that. Maybe it's a cup of coffee in the morning. Maybe it's the Bible opened and listening to worship and you feel the presence of God right there. You're in a worship service, the preaching and teaching or it's the singing and the praising. You feel the presence of God. So take that moment that you feel and multiply it times a million, times a billion, and that's just a fraction of the experience that you're going to have with the connection with the Lord. Um, it's the deepest level. It, it's, uh, it's privilege. Um, I've had the privilege to be in the presence of some pretty special people in my time, uh, my young life, I've been around governors, I've been around presidents, 
I've been around pastors and preachers and business owners and multimillionaires and billionaires. But you know what's interesting about all those people? None of them really invited me to be with them. But Jesus invited me. And he's the CEO of the whole world. So you think about it, the CEO of the whole world has requested that you're with him. He's with me. She's with me. That's what I desire. Um, that's privilege. The word privilege it means a special advantage. It means immunity granted, available only to a particular person. So to be completely politically incorrect, you are so privileged. You are privileged. Uh, you've heard of privilege. I, I don't buy that kind of privilege, but I buy this kind of Christian privilege. I buy this kind of Christian privilege that says that you're, it doesn't matter about your race. It doesn't matter whether you're red, yellow, black, or white. You are precious in his sight. If you're a Christian, you are privileged. You are favored. You are loved. You are cared for. You're prayed for. You're prayed for by Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Can you hear what he says? If uh, you believe it, turn to your neighbor or turn to one of your friends and say, you're privileged. Go ahead. You're privileged. <laughs> uh, so not only do you have privilege, but Jesus, part of this prayer is, is a place. He talks about a place. He says, we also have a place. We have a place with him. We're going to see Jesus face to face, and that place is heaven. It's a place where he will be. It's our eternal destiny. It's where you may have a, an address to your home, but you have an eternal address with the Lord. It's an eternal citizenship. And the Bible says in John chapter 14 that he was preparing a place for you. So the prayer is issuing a place. He says that where I am, he wants you there. Um, this will be um, the culmination, the fulfillment of the Lord's prayer the kingdom will have come on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus prays not only that he wants you to have the privilege to have access with him, but he prays that you'll be there for sure. So this should actually give you an assurance of your salvation. If Jesus says you should be there, then guess what? You're going to be there, okay? If he's praying for you to be there, you're not going to be late. You'll be there. Uh, you're going to be there. Um, and then there's the purpose of this prayer that he prays for eternal fellowship. Uh, he says to see my glory. He wants you to see his glory. Like the glory that Moses longed to see, the glory of God, and the disciples witness at the transfiguration and that celestial realm as well that filled the temple and the glory that was around and shined over Mount Sinai and like the glory that was there in the earthly ministry when the glory of the Lord was revealed in Jesus' earthly ministry to some extent. The Bible says that the place that we're going, that the city actually doesn't need the sun or the moon because the glory of God shines so bright that we won't need it. That's the kind of glory that we're talking about here. There's a fullness of glory. And then lastly, what we're going to see is that Jesus prays for the church to be filled with the Father's love. He prays for the church to be filled with love. And John, the apostle, will write a lot about this love, and it becomes a mega theme uh, for him to write about. Um, he writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, he writes the book of Revelation. And he writes a lot about love. 
And here he captures what Jesus says, that the church ought to be filled with the Father's love. Uh, Jesus turns from making a request for a moment, and he, gives, he acknowledges God, the Father, in this prayer, and he will make some statements known. Verse 25, look what it says. He says, uh, O righteous Father, uh, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that 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 they love that the love that which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's a number of things that happen in this particular prayer request, and I'll label them out. The first is in verse 25. There's an affirmation. Jesus affirms the righteousness of the Father in His intimate knowledge. He starts with, "O righteous Father," He's affirming who God is. You're a righteous God. He says, oh, righteous father, he gives, and he affirms that. And then he moves in for clarification. And he says, verse 26, I've made known to them your name. In other words, I did this. I, I made known to them, the disciples, your name. Uh, Jesus emphasizes his mission to reveal the father's name and extends his love to believers. And then there is the continuation in verse 26b. He says, and I will continue to make it known. I thought, wow, what does this mean? Jesus is committed to this ongoing revelation of ensuring the perpetuation of the Father's love and truth. In other words, that you continually experience the Father's love, the truth of God's Word. The prayer highlights Jesus' dedication to continually revealing the Father's name and His love to believers, indicating this continuous, unending ministry and disclosure of illumination. And then finally, we see that there is this transformation. Jesus prays in the tail end, and he says, uh, uh, with which you have loved me may be in them. In other words, that the Father's love would be in us. In other words, that Jesus prays that the Father's love would dwell in the life of the believer, that you would be able to love with the Father heart of God. Or if you're a parent, that you would be able to uh, love, love with a, a, a parent's heart uh, towards all people. And Jesus prays for this father's love that he has and would be dwelling in the life of the believer. And this would unify the church. And I thought about this, uh, how would this relate to our church? How could we apply this? Uh, Jesus prayed that the love that the father gave him would be in us, that is evident, and if Jesus prayed it, then you should believe it. And you know, he, God answers the prayers of Jesus. Jesus prays that it, we would all display, in some sense, some kind of parental love to other believers and to new believers and new communities and perhaps even new churches. And we need to, as a church, to take on this Father heart of God uh, so that we can share the same kind of love that the Father has with the Son, that we share it with other people. And so, h- how do you do that? And I'm thinking about how do we love with the Father's love? How do we love people with the Father's love? And I thought, well, what does a father do? And I came up with three things that a father does. And I'll say them a couple times so you can remember them, but a father guides, a, fa- a father should provide. And then a father should abide. 
a father guides, a father provides, and then a father should abide. A father, a good father, will guide his kids to provide guidance and encouragement, to support them, you know, and how they're doing. And as a, as a young kid, um, when you're a parent, uh, you will be the primary teacher at the home for the kids. You'll teach them how to brush their teeth. You'll teach them how to do everything. Um, and then over time, as a parent, that transitions, and then you turn into when they leave the home and they go to college one day, you become their coach, and you parent them like a coach. You cheer them on. You support them, but you're not there to do all the details and teach them everything. They're learning from others. And then over time, as kids move on and um, they get married, then you become not just a coach. Now you should become like a consultant. You just give them advice. And if they don't ask for it, they'll tell you, we didn't ask for your advice. <laughs> um, and then over time, you change and you're not the consultant. You become a friend. And there's a role that you play as a parent. And it is a guiding role. And I think for us as a church to have this father's love is this means that we need to provide encouragement and guidance for new believers. We need to provide guidance and instruction towards new communities that are starting when we're starting new community groups. We need to provide guidance and encouragement for new churches because after all, uh, they need help. And so um, if we're going to do this, apply this, this lesson of uh, the Father's love, is this church, as it's grown and matured in time, we've come to a place where we can now, we enlist and invite many of you to invest in the lives of young people and you make a difference. In fact, we have junior high kids and high school kids that serve as what we call guides. They're guiding those that are younger than in, in the faith. And as adults, we are guiding others, and we should be expressing and showing and highlighting and demonstrating and displaying the Father's love with a sense of guidance and encouragement. And after all, this is, what I think, what Jesus meant. You are the light of the world. You're to help people see where to go. Um, as a church, we're able to do this with even churches. Um, at the time uh, that the Sunday crowd, you guys see this, many of us in this room uh, will be at a new church helping start a new church. And we will be with the new church helping that church get going. Matt and Hannah Rose are church planners. And the role that I have to play and many of the staff have to play is a role of guiding, encouraging, supporting, uh, being there for them to help instruct and help in any way that we can. And as a Christian at North Valley, you should serve and have the mindset. My job to express the Father's love is to help guide like a father would guide his kids. So will I. Your life, you should help guide others along. And then there is the role of the Father's love where he provides. A father that doesn't provide is not a good father. Um, to express the Father's love as a church, like a father provides for the needs of his kids, so should the church provide the needs for other Christians and new believers and new communities and new churches. Um, Jesus' prayer is that this fatherly love would be in the church. In other words, that the church would take on this role of helping raise up new kids, help them get going, help them get growing, support them, encourage them guide them, but also provide for them. 
One of the cool things about our network that we're a part of, we're a part of the Vision Arizona Network, and we help start and strengthen churches. I see, sit on the leadership team for that network, and we've been able to plant a number of great churches around the valley. Here in the recent past, we helped start a new church called Flatirons Church out in the East Valley. Another one uh, in surprise called the Garden Church, and most recently, it will be Orbit Church. Um, all of us can play a role, though, in helping support and encourage, uh, raise up a new generation. Our investment into kids, our investment into serving others, um, helping start and strengthen communities. It is a role that this church must play. We are here today because there was another church that decided to get involved and, and show a, an act of provision to help start another church, and that church was Scottsdale Bible Church. That church said, hey, we want to help give birth to new churches. We want to help invest into new churches so that we can see God's work continue to come. And if you know Pastor Daryl Del Husay, he served very much like a fatherly role to me. Uh, when I came here, I realized very quickly, I mean, if there was a Christian mafia, he'd be the head of it. <laughs> he is the godfather of this valley. And that's the role that this church ought to play. And that starts with us. That we've got to constantly make that commitment. Hey, I want to help guide. I want to express the Father's love. I want to provide. And we do that through giving. We do that through serving. Some of you can give significantly. Um, large contributions. But did you know those of you that can't give those large contributions, did you know that your gift is just as significant? And if it's proportional... You give what you can. Uh, the hero of the story of generosity is the, the poor widow who put in uh, just a little penny, and it was all that she had. That's sacrificial giving. The Bible teaches tithing and sacrificial giving. That's what it teaches. It doesn't teach tipping. It teaches that we should be providing. And as a church, we need to be providing for um, young people to be raised up. We need to expand buildings. We need to plant churches. We need to start new community groups. Uh, um, Sunday afternoon, I am headed over to the Skiba's house. We're launching a brand new community group. Pastor Stewart and myself are there supporting them, encouraging them. It's like a new, a new mission, a new community starting. And we need to be there to provide guidance and provision and encouragement. You play in that role too. And the last thing that a father does, the father's love, a good father will abide, means he will stay the course. A bad dad will leave. Jesus prays that the church would have this father's love, and you know and I know good dads stick around. When things get tough, they stay put. I think the church needs this. The church needs this abiding kind of love to say, hey, we're united together. The word abide is used 43 different times in the New Testament. It's mino. It means literally to continue to exist or to remain or to continue to exist and still be in existence. <laughs> you want to know what will make this church stick around a long time? People that stick around. Because the church is the people. It's not the building. It's people that say, you know what, we're going to stick with it. We're not going to fight over the secondhand issues. We're not going to fight over the non-essentials because we've learned in non-essentials, let there be liberty. In essentials, let there be unity. Amen? 
And so stick around, abide. Um, this church applies the Father's love by guiding others like a parent would guide a kid, by providing for others like a parent would for a kid, and abiding, sticking around when things get tough. That is, I think, the Father's love. I think this is what the world is waiting to see and judge, is there a God full of love and mercy or not? And so, as a reminder, questions that I have for you, are you, are you willing to help guide others? Are you serving anywhere? Are you making disciples? Are you providing at all financially for new Christians or new communities or churches? Are you willing to abide? Are you willing to stay the course? Are you willing to be faithful in this church or the church that you come from? Are you willing to plug in and make a difference? As a physical reminder for the season that we're in, I've, I've got one of these bracelets right here. And um, what I want you to do with it is uh, they're all around the campus is to grab one and to put it on. We're in, this week marks 40 days out from Easter. And my hope and prayer would be is that you would help make the name and fame of Jesus Christ famous through your avenues, through your influence, your friends, is to do that. And these bracelets have scriptures on them, different scriptures on them, and might you put them on and then just as we kind of approach this Easter season, there will be a lot of folks that will be baptized on Easter. We'll have a great Good Friday service. Uh, we'll do two of those and four different Easter services. But this, these are the greatest events in world history. Of course, the birth of Christ is incredible, but the death and the burial resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And so, what I want to encourage you to do is thinking about moving forward to show the Father's love is that maybe you would be praying and the bracelet would be a reminder to pray for friends, family, people, our church, and who you might invite. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would apply it as we close out this section in John 17. I, I pray that you would prepare hearts for what is ahead. As we pause for a moment, Lord, we acknowledge that you are good. In John 17, we've seen your prayers for yourself. We've seen the prayers that you've had for the disciples. And we've discovered today the prayers that you have for the church. Now, thank you for your care and your concern for unity and our witness in the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your kindness and your commitment to provide for us this eternal dwelling place in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for the love that you provide and that you have for us. And I pray that that love would overflow in incredible levels of generosity to invest our time, our energy into this next generation. Um, from new believers to new communities to new churches, I pray that we would be faithful for your name and fame, the name of Jesus, the name above all names. And everybody said,